Hey y'all, it's Io here with Noodle Nook, and I am so glad today to be here with my friend Debbie, and we're talking all about transition for students with disabilities. She's gonna share with us three essential things to keep in mind as you're drafting a plan for your students, or possibly your own kids. So let's go ahead and get this video started. Hey Debbie, how are you doing today? I'm great, Io. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is really exciting to have an opportunity to talk about my passion, transition. I literally am so glad you're here. You're like one of the most awesomest, is that a word? The most <laughs> amazing women in the business. So I, when it comes to transition and the depth of knowledge that you have, it literally like, I feel like I should bow down because you are just a wealth of knowledge. So I am actually so glad that you're here. Oh, thanks. But I really have to give credit to all the parents that have been so open and so sharing over the years, um, showing me the path that they were walking with their students. Yeah. yeah, you know, and I think that's an interesting point to make for everyone out there who's like, I wish I could know more about transition. You know, this is not something you learn overnight. It's not something you even learn really well in a course. You actually have to kind of get out there and learn it in the trenches because there's so many nuances to transition which is part of why it's such a challenge so yes i completely agree like every family that you meet every transition that you plan through helps you to get this depth of knowledge to apply to the next family in transition tell us a little bit about yourself oh my goodness well you know i'm an old dog i've been at this a long time but um <laughs> it's certainly been an interesting journey i can remember wanting to be a school teacher uh, when I was five or six years old and um, my dad set up a bench and a chalkboard in the garage so that I could have all the neighbor children in that would sit still um, and I would go to the board and write things and point and I just thought I was all that. Um, but in my first grade year, I uh, lost my hearing due to a number of infections and um, an injury that I had, and there wasn't special education. There really weren't ways to accommodate back in the 60s, uh, in the old days, you know, cave days of, of elementary school. And um, so going through public school, not having the foundation that I needed to be a confident reader really shaped the way that I felt about school and about what I was going to be able to attain as an adult. So That's insane. I had no idea that you had those challenges with your hearing. I, I can only imagine how that would impact the process of going through the educational system when there weren't really a lot of good supports for individuals with disabilities and specifically hearing loss. As so many people do that have um, a hearing loss, I learned very early on to fake it and do a lot of lip reading, um, which came into, um, it was a big benefit when I became an assistant principal years later <laughs> because I could lip read across a crowded cafeteria and the kids never could figure out how I heard what they were planning when I would catch them before they would do something they would have regretted. That uh, is literally the a, funniest thing I have ever heard. They thought I had the whole cafeteria bugged, but I was just reading their lips. 
Okay, well, so uh, now uh, we need to make sure that we include lip reading in teacher coursework. I feel like this there is you go. The there, you never know what skills you'll pick up along the way that will be helpful. Exactly. Well, that's that's amazing that you were able to accommodate your way through it. But you were mentioning that you found challenges in reading. Uh, because I missed a lot of first grade and missed those foundational skills, um, they didn't have whole language back in the '60s. So when you were uh, being taught phonics and um, lots of different uh, letter sound correlation, uh, when you miss that, you don't have the building blocks to become a fluent and confident reader. So I developed skills that were great at word call and could always end up sounding things out, which was kind of unique to what my disability had been. Um, but it really never gelled for me in comprehension and retention. That, that continued to be a struggle until I was 21 uh, in the Philippines as a military wife, uh, bedridden for a period of time uh, during a pregnancy, and had literally nothing to do except listen to TV or radio that was in a different language than what I really understood, or uh, friends and neighbors would bring by boxes of library books. And through just immersion, practice, and patience, uh, was able to build that foundation that then convinced me that uh, non-readers or struggling readers can be remediated. So. You know, what's insane is that you are one of the most epic educators that I know. And it's insane to think that at the age of, in your early 20s, that you were, you were challenged with reading. I mean, that, <laughs> Did that not, I, avoided, I avoided college because I thought I would be a poor student. So did not get my first degree until I was 30. Well, and so, so there, for anyone who's teaching students in special education with this presumption that they don't they're not doing well and they don't have any future. It's, it's really, you know, heartwarming to think of someone who graduated even from high school with no plan to go to college. And I don't even know how many degrees you have right now. <laughs> uh, I think it's, it's sitting at five, but I have my eye on another program. <laughs> I mean, but that's really like to say that when we're done with K-12, that we've mapped the plan for a kid for their whole life. You know, that's, that's really not true. There are still opportunities to be had in adulthood for students with uh, disabilities. So that's, I love that story. Thank you for sharing that with us. Oh, certainly. And, and so all of those steps, you know, things that I viewed as missteps or failures along the way brought me to uh, the last 10 years of really having a pa passion for transition, understanding that um, they're really, um, if you, if you, want something, there are uh, accommodations or steps that you can take to get there. Um, but that all of the skills that you pick up along the way can be valuable. Um, and, and hopefully that's what I'm sharing now as a career counselor and transition um, advocate um, in the community since I've, since I've recently retired from public school. Yes, and congratulations on your retirement. I think, Thank I hate you. to say it, but like this was a good year to go. <laughs> it, it was not planned for those who thought that I saw COVID coming from the coast and bailed. I, I want you to know 
I had been on a plane from California as recently as March 1st, um, did not have on a mask, did not understand contagion, um, could be so life-changing. Um, it just had made up my mind that it was time to open my counseling practice and um, be, be free to say some of the things that I wanted to say to students and families that I really, you know, couldn't say as a public school employee. Well, so you have now transitioned kind of from the public sector into the private sector, but I'm guessing that the, the problems that plague not only parents, but also teachers within the realm of transition for students with significant disabilities probably stayed pretty much the same between those two environments. What are some of the things, what are some of the um, complications of planning for transition that most people have trouble with? Something that I've seen uh, really not change a lot uh, nationally or even in our state of Texas over the past 10 years is that um, we're, we're still not speaking the same language. Parents, students, and teachers aren't sharing a common vocabulary that can help us understand one another and understand the nuances that'll make a plan successful are uh, really very difficult to achieve in supporting a student. Wow, that's kind of deep because those are the, the three legs of the stool, you know, the parent, the student, and the teachers. We all have to work together to get success. If any one of those legs fails, the stool will not stand. <laughs> so that we're not even speaking the same language has got to be a big challenge for anyone involved in that process. Just the term graduation is debatable because when parents or students speak of graduation, they are envisioning a ceremony, whether it's virtual now or not, um, a diploma, since we're a one diploma state in Texas. Um, but in schools, we don't help students and parents understand that if they're going to assert their idea rights and stay in school for post-secondary training or expect that from the district, we shouldn't be using the term graduation. We really should uh, talk about their rights under state law to participate in a ceremony, but that diploma should be coming along with uh, the end of IEP process. And I know many of my um, colleagues and um, uh, folks that work in um, counseling as well as advocacy uh, may not agree with that, um, but it's very hard to say, for me, to say that a student has um, the right to self-advocate and then we really are not clear with them about whether or not they're leaving after their 12th or 13th year of public schooling and what the goals are, what the tasks will be for the next year or two years or more that they are working on, why they're working on them, what they're working toward, and what happens if those things don't work out or you know, they train to work as a cook and they find out they're afraid of gas stoves or open <laughs> flame. And, and so they want to open their own business. 
um, of, in some other field? You know, how do we help them address that? Well, and it's very interesting that you talk about that because there's this overlap. We've had this shift in perception where our students who had especially significant disabilities and took advantage of edu their educational options past 18, that it didn't really seem like it was with purpose. It seemed like it was just as, as part of an option that was available. And we've shifted a little bit now and we're continuing to shift through this phase of trying to think about the outcomes for the students specifically and how we can meet the needs of those outcomes with this extra time. So if those outcomes don't allow, don't align with the services that we provide in a standard you know, school building, what else is there? What other options are there? Because we are trying to think about those years as being meaningful and purposeful, not just I'm passing time because I can. Um, so that's interesting that you draw that line that we do have to kind of speak the same language because there's this shift in mentality that we're asking our parents, our teachers, and our students to all do to think of K-12 ending and this extra time being with purpose to drive us towards our outcome. I have to admit, I'm a little surprised that um, stay-at-home policies or the time that we uh, were not in school buildings together over the past six months hasn't sparked uh, richer conversations, more honest disclosure uh, from the school, from the educators, as well as from students and their families. I think that for those um, persons that would take it as an opportunity to say, the past six months could be a snapshot of what the next 10 years would look like for my adult child, uh, staying at home, not having activities, not having purpose, not having a way to earn an income or have um, something to, um, to be proud of, to accomplish. Um, instead, what I, instead, what I'm hearing are, are folks that are saying, I, I, I need for it to go back like it was. And that, that really hit home for me because that was always the um, conversation that the phone call that I got from parents three months after their 22-year-old left public school and they would say, we need for it to go back like it was. My child uh, sits in the living room and watches the school buses drive by in September and cries. Um, that means none of us did a good job for that young person in transition. Yeah, so I mean, it, I guess the, the positive of having this quarantine period is that we really, you really do see firsthand, what is it gonna look like when my kid can't go to school anymore? And exactly. now you have a better idea of what transition plan you have to put in place. And with that in mind, you know, I do want to mention that unemployment has really skyrocketed over the last six months. And we've historically seen that students with disabilities have a like almost triple the rate of unemployment as their non-disabled peers. And that employment that they do gain is not only tough to maintain, but sometimes just, you know, some very basic minimal pay jobs. But now, under the last six months, we've seen that even that has increased another 20% by some estimates. So we're talking about almost 85% of students with disabilities being unemployed at this time. So when it, across, you yeah, yeah, when across you talk, the disabilities, it, yeah. so it's not just those that would have uh, significant cognitive or physical disability, 
but even what we used to refer to as high functioning students um, are, are struggling with advanced uh, training or with college degrees. Um, the, the numbers are still staying the same that more than 75% of students with autism, for example, are unemployed well into their 20s and 30s, and they're just not enough employers ready to embrace um, accommodations, not changing, uh, I heard someone talking about this yesterday, not changing a workplace policies. If you, um, you know, curse at a customer, you're still going to lose your job, no matter your disability. Nobody's going to guarantee you the right to work if you're not following policies. But some people think that their child with a disability is going to have those, those options, so I'm glad you said that. And so we need to be talking more honestly, and we need to find a way with our great community partners, with uh, chambers of commerce, with the relationships that our principals and administrators have had for years with uh, community members, we need to find a way to speak more honestly about what the workplace demands will be, and then how are folks with disabilities going to uh, accommodate their work environment. Yeah, and I know that no teacher, parent, or, or person with a disability could have seen the pandemic and its fallout coming, but to think of how we asked the workforce to change what they were doing in such a deep and profound way on a dime. You have to also acknowledge that people high or low functioning, I hate that label too, but you know, uh, that were out in the workforce who don't change skill sets that quickly were easily, easily marginalized or dismissed from positions because they weren't able to, to accommodate what they were doing to fit the new workforce demands. So I, I know that no one saw that coming, but to train our, our, our students in the classroom with vocational skills that are universal and a little more flexible could be the difference between staying employed and not staying employed when we get through these tough transition times. Well, it sounds a little Pollyannish of me, I know, but I choose to see this as the opportunity that uh, we have had a huge disclosure of where our weak spots are and that uh, we can rise to that challenge. As, as educators, as family members of um, young people with disabilities, um, as advocates, we can rise to this challenge. We just have to communicate more and better. Well, and I, we don't have a choice, <laughs> so we're going to have to for the, for the welfare of the students and adults that we support. So, you know, we talk a little bit about transition in terms of employment, um, and we're talking about planning for that transition. I also want to just kind of point out, too, that we've also seen statistically that students with disabilities live at a, at a lower um, income level, on average, than their non-disabled peers. And so, this conversation, you know, having these conversations with parents and students about what, what their life is gonna look like post-secondary and hearing kids and sometimes parents too say, oh, well, they're gonna work here and they're going to live in their own apartment and they're gonna do this and that. And we think about the super high unemployment rate and then the super low average income and how to make those realities <laughs> align and plan for a future that's actually realistic. 
but it reminds me of when I drive down the freeway and I see an eighty or ninety thousand dollar car and think, oh my goodness, I bet that's so comfortable. I bet I could really drive well in that. But the chances of me buying a car that costs three times what my current car cost um, are very slim. And so I, I need to, you know, get the oil changed on this one and work within the parameters that I have. Um, so not to say that, um, and I'd always caution the educators that I'd worked with and trained, um, that we're not in the business of dashing people's dreams. That's not, you know, what we think is reasonable for one student may or may not be depending on the support system and the resources that they have available. Um, I, I know people that um, have taken out student loans to go to school uh, when people thought that they couldn't afford or would never be uh, college graduates. And uh, that, that degree may or may not have helped them uh, find their first job. They may have had to um, amend that plan um, it, it, even someone without a, an obvious disability or, or one that um, impairs their ability to work um, may have to amend their plan. So why we would think there would be anything different uh, for our friends with disabilities or with special uh, services, uh, I'm not sure, but we need, to, we need to wake up and smell the coffee and look at um, not just uh, is this possible or is this what we've always talked about, but is it reasonably attainable? That's kind of deep. And you think about, I have, I have some kids that are college bound and the average college student changes their major like what, five times? And, yes. and college has now gone from a four-year plan to a six-year plan because... And, and gotten painfully expensive. So you're spending a lot of money to not have had some sort of plan in place. Yes. And again, and looking for reasonableness of attaining, you know, I, I, in 30 years in public education, I probably met 10,000 students that had cognitive and physical disabilities that made it not really reasonable that they would complete veterinary medicine school but they wanted their stated goal, and sometimes even um, with, with quite a bit of tension in IEP meetings, um, the support system, the family, the guardian, the caregiver um, said, you know, why are you trying to take away this student's dream? And that was never the intention, but what we know as educators is that there are a lot of hoops that all of us jump through to attain a degree or particularly an advanced degree. And that if passing biology in high school without significant supports is not likely, then um, other animal <laughs> care kinds of jobs uh, may be something we want to explore that is more reasonably attainable for a student that wants to help animals. I feel like every teacher listening to this right now should go grab a pen and pencil and wrote, write down exactly what you just said verbatim because that was the nicest no I've ever heard. 
<laughs> but even, even when you think about, you know, neurotypical kids who are graduating from high school and going to college, so many of us change what we're doing between the time we're 18 or 15 to the time that we're 40. I, you know, you said you had a passion for teaching when you were very young, but that wasn't yes. the thing that you went into when you were in your teens and 20s. It, it's something, you know, your career is something you kind of evolve and grow into. In addition, to think that we could train our students in high school for jobs that will sustain them for the next 20, 30, or 40 years just does not acknowledge how, how quickly the work landscape changes given technology and automation. So, you know, when we sit in those meetings, and I've been there too, where someone has said, well, my, my, my child is going to be a wedding photographer with a significant cognitive and physical disability. And you think, if it were my wedding, <laughs> yes. I don't know that I would hire someone that I wasn't sure was, was going to get the shot. And in addition, to, tr to stop all other transition prep, to train this student for a photography job, might not even be the thing that they want to sustain in their 30s and 40s and 50s. So the yeah, wonderful, the wonderful thing about public schooling is that we should be having the conversation of when you want to be a wedding photographer, what experience do you have with photography? And if as painful as it is, because I know it is completely out of the wheelhouse for teachers, paraprofessionals, uh, special ed um, case managers, administrators, Counselors, think about, oh, to think about what it would take to allow that student to attempt a semester of photography so that it wasn't the school or an outside force closing that door, but that student or that student along with their support group determining that's not the best choice for their future and what could we look at or what could we suggest as trained career counselors or transition specialists that might have a, a related field of study or might have a, another field of study that could use those skills that you were looking at that you thought only fit wedding photography, but may very well fit another area that could be life-changing, life-improving. Absolutely, and it's and not just- really, um, meet the meet the dreams. Yeah, and it's not just students with disabilities. I mean, this is a conversation for any, any parent, any student, any person, because you, you do, you want to capitalize on the things that you love and enjoy and are good at and find a career that takes all of those things into consideration and allows you to earn a decent wage. So, you know, for this student with the dream of wedding photography, it was how can we work on underlying skills? What is it that you love about this that is what draws you and how can we capitalize on that? So that is a hard conversation and a very fine line sometimes between facilitating and redirecting, but it is part of the job <laughs> as a teacher and case manager. So as we think about the three tips to help teachers kind of navigate what is kind of a transition landmine, <laughs> yes. um, how, what tips can you offer a teacher as they're getting ready to support students through this process and, and really plan for a transition focused on outcomes 
that doesn't lead to a student on a couch for the rest of their life? Well, I want to start by saying I, I recognize that this could sound condescending, and I do not intend for it to, because I respect educators. I can tell you who all of my teachers were uh, that encouraged me or tolerated my, my idiosyncrasies as I was going through public school and beyond, and professors and, and others who encouraged me when I did not believe that I could ever be sitting here with you today talking about this and talking about my journey. But um, the fact is that in most systems in public schools today, the people that are being asked to do transition, to meet the law and the intent of the law for transition are not properly trained. They don't have the time. It was a job or a task that was added on to a leaning tower of other tasks that have been piled on special education teachers and others over the past 40 years to where the job description of special education teacher or para is, is almost laughable. If you I, just I, look if at it. If I can it, get an amen from anyone out there. Just to... <laughs> yeah. if, you, if you look at it in isolation, it's, it's really um, not possible. I mean, and I think the quarantine just really highlights that, that you're, we're asking our teachers to be so many things to, in so many ways to so many students. That and, and spin all the plates at the same time. Teach in person while there's virtual learning supposedly going on when those are two very different skill sets, two very different tasks. Absolutely. But going back to transition, the, the uh, intent of all transition, the intent of special education law was that an individual education plan had to be in place. Well, when we start through economy of size or lack of time or any other excuse we can put on doing transition well to say we didn't take the time to get to know that student, know their skills, preferences, interests, and needs. You'll hear me talk about spins all the time. Skills, preferences, interests, and needs of that individual. And I've taught life skills. I've taught students that came to school in an ambulance and were on a gurney all day. And I've also taught students that um, had physical disabilities that did not stop them from going and uh, getting a master's degree at Texas A&M University, and I've taught lots of students uh, in lots of different areas. So I, I feel the pain of a teacher trying to get started in doing transition. In fact, my daughter's company that I've just gone to work for, um, ACE Resources, and that stands for Advocacy, Consulting, and Empowerment and that is our mission. Uh, we are ready <laughs> to publish. Uh, we're gonna put on the market some documents and packets for parents and educators uh, September 1st, so that they have a guide to start talking about vocabulary in the same way, but they also understand that students in their own individual way need to be allowed to determine their interests and their needs 
um, brag on their skills or show those skills uh, in, in positive and, and reinforcing environments and make that be the first step of transition planning. A transition plan that is done without the student uh, should be so rare that um, I'm called in to consult. Because <laughs> well, I love the acronym that you just said. The SPIN is great. So anyone who is actually taking notes, write that down again. Student preferences, interests, and needs. And any teacher who is working with a student with a disability should have access to that information from the, the time a kid sets foot in a public school building till the time you stop servicing that, that child. Those things you have to know to draft good behavior plans to draft good IEP goals, to draft good transition and outcomes. You have to know that. So make sure you always know the spin. Always know the spin. So <laughs> Debbie, I'm excited that you're gonna make some resources because that alone is gold. <laughs> it's, it's just so much the, the intent of special education law and special education services is that those things would be individualized. And I, again, I'm, I'm speaking, um, remembering the uh, secondary teachers, middle school and high school teachers that would come and say to me, even those that really wanted to master this, that really wanted to be great at transition and felt the obligation to their students would come and say, I have 45 minutes off during the day. Often I spend that 45 minutes in an ARD meeting, an IEP meeting. How do I reach the 20 or 25 students on my caseload that I don't teach during the day because of the way that um, the, the difference in what case management or special education um, facilitation looks like in elementary school, where you have more access to the students, you have more access to your colleagues or teaming, you have um, that expectation by, of parents that you will be calling, you will be asking questions, and you will be talking about the student and their needs and their preferences. We lose that somehow at secondary, yet the legal obligation is still there that Absolutely. we would be acting in that way. So do I have a magic pill for that? No, but I have some ideas and some ways I learned over 30 years in public education to not necessarily cut corners, but make that work manageable so that as a secondary um, special education um, worker, uh, no matter your role, that you can lay down and put your head on the pillow at night and actually sleep instead of feeling like I, you didn't do a good job that day. Absolutely. Well, so I'm gonna recap for just a second. The very first tip that you shared with everyone is to know the spin. Know what the student preferences, interests, and needs are because they are the center of everything that we're doing, the student individually. The second tip that I'm hearing is that you really do have to know how to craft and implement a good transition plan and know what that looks like. And although it would, I mean, I literally think that we can't do enough training on this topic because it's just so vast to know social services that are available, realistic outcomes, future planning, individual uh, individual independent living goals and facilitation community partnership it's just there's so many pieces so as a teacher you know we do want to go to sleep every night and not have our brains spinning all night long about the things we need to get done but you do have to know how to craft and implement a good transition plan 
And I'm glad that people like you are out there to facilitate us learning more about the topic and parents being able to advocate for them, themselves and their child in a meaningful way. I'm glad that you're out in the community doing that. Well, thanks. So part of that seven years that I spent directly training educators uh, in transition planning and implementation, um, I never felt like it was enough. And um, that um, is my cross to bear. But what it made me realize, and when I talked earlier about those things I wanted to say, but couldn't really feel free to say as a public school employee, um, is that we need to be more realistic in our expectations of educators uh, guiding that transition planning and implementation process. They still need to know we can't abdicate that role or, or throw away that responsibility, but um, being outside of the public school now and understanding how dynamic, um, how, how frequently um, agency and uh, other supports change, lose funding, uh, open up, close, um, I think it's unrealistic to think every special educator would have all those things memorized and have the time to stay on top of it. So what I'm hoping is that in the future that um, the schools will promote um, advocacy centers, parent centers, um, Disability Rights Texas, other places where families or students who want to self-advocate can access those resource lists, those references, um, but we're going to have to teach, we're going to have to support students learning how to look up references, determine which ones they want to try or contact, and uh, have parents see that we're gonna be handing the baton back to them if the student is not able to move from um, their own self-advocate to adulthood um, successfully, that those parents are going to have to be ready to reach out and take that baton back and do some of that outreach, some of the resource uh, investigation and uh, access um, as, as the loved one for their young person. Absolutely. Well, and so many of those things that you talked about, we want our, our, our student, our children, our adults with disabilities to be empowered to advocate for themselves and be their own, um, the driver of their own future. But <laughs> so many of these supports actually need to be applied for or started or in place when, when sometimes kids are born. Some of the lists for social services are 10 or 12 or 15 years long you heard me, years long. And you wanna get on those as soon as, as possible so that when you need them, they are there. So I, I, when you're talking about advocating and parents being involved and kind of that shift in power and, and how to balance all of that, there is a point where the parent does have to be the primary driver because we, we need to start this process young. Absolutely. Unfortunately, you know, I was born and raised in Texas, so uh, it is my home. But unfortunately, we are not uh, even in the top 10 or top 20 or top 30 
of states that access Medicaid waiver programs or other things that are in that area that you're speaking to of 15 to longer, 15 year waiting lists. Um, Social Security uh, or supplemental income from the Social Security Administration is a different area. The, the qualifications or the, the application process is different, um, but not necessarily less difficult. Uh, so those are things that parents really need to start um, being aware of, or students need to be involved in conversations early on about what is that? What does that look like? How how is that going to help me? Is it something I need to pursue or at least apply for? And then if I find out when I'm 22 I don't need it, I can say, "Gee, thanks," and we'll move on. Right. But um, but you're absolutely right. There aren't enough resources. Uh, just and and many parents. I was shocked the first time I heard it, but I certainly understand that many parents believe that because ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, allows for curb cuts and braille signage and other things out in public areas or in private business if it's a large enough business, they believe erroneously that that will, uh, can be used to meet their individual child's, adult child's needs uh, when they're out in the community. And it's just not true. Uh, there's no real law that compels anyone to have to hire your child, have to retain them as an employee, have to retrain them if things are um, changing in the workplace. Um, those just aren't things that have been proven in the courts to support adults with disabilities. Well, and I think that's why the, the suggestion that you make that school districts and parents and individuals with disabilities have a center for transition, a, a, a place to go to find information, truths, <laughs> instead of falsehoods that somehow get perpetuated inside of these communities. But to find the truth, to find supports, to find information, it is so overwhelming for so many parents when you have a young child who you find out has a disability or uh, have an older child that you find out it has developed a, a disability to try to navigate all of the things that are involved so that you can support them the way any parent would want to. It's overwhelming. So many, the, the suggestion that you made is great. I love the idea of a resource center. Many of the folks that have been kind enough to allow me to um, do professional development with them or train with them have heard me say that I have four grandsons and three of them have received special services, uh, two through special education and one through 504. Um, so I am very aware that every day when you wake up and you have your neurotypical, whatever that is, um, children or child in the home that has a, a routine that needs to be followed, a meal that needs to be prepared, lunch needs to be packed, homework needs to be checked, um, that those things in and of themselves can be time consuming to overwhelming, just depending on what else is going on in life right, right then with you. Uh, add to that, a child that has divergent needs 
and your day is almost more than you can tolerate some days. And I'm Absolutely. speaking from experience because bless my daughter's heart. She is a young woman um, in, in her prime of life who made the choice when I offered um, to come and live with me or share a house with me so that she would have some support as she parented uh, children with special needs. Absolutely, uh, because there's no four-day weekend or long holiday oh, or summers off as a parent of a student with special needs. And, and even, you know, not to be too personal, but just to let folks know that I do understand this is, this is not an easy road or there's no easy fix that I am offering. Um, she and I have not traveled together without her children, nor have we been to a movie together without the children in over 10 years. The children are 12 and 14. Um, because we were for years terrified that if something happened to both of us while we were out together, that there would be no backup. Um, I'm an only child, she was an only child. Um, and so just recently, like this summer, since COVID, we have amended our wills and our estate plan and uh, put up a trust for uh, the child with more significant issues um, and a college fund for the other child in 504. Mm -hmm. um, but putting those things off uh, was something that I can um, admit now was just so emotionally overwhelming that I didn't have the energy to work 10 or 12 hours a day, many weekends, um, do the study that I, I felt like I needed to do to stay up on what was going on in transition and then have any energy left to say, <laughs> this is what we want to have happen for these children when we're no longer here. Absolutely. Well, and even the things that you mentioned, you know, when you talk about doing financial planning and trust and setting up um, educational savings plans, the, for students with disabilities, these are things you have to consider early because as we talked about with the employment and earned income of, stu of students and adults with disabilities, they're going to need extra financial support throughout their life. And if you don't think of these things early, it can be even more overwhelming down the road because now it's just this huge and epic thing <laughs> that you have to deal with. So yeah, I, it's so overwhelming and you cannot start early enough in planning for transition and adulthood for individuals with disabilities. And again, as an educator, if, even if you don't have anyone in your immediate responsibility or in your immediate family um, that receives special services or has a disability, um, being an educator, the expectation is that you will have some understanding of these processes, of the uh, terminology, of how to, not how to fix things for a student or their family, but where to send them or where to refer them. Um, and that is a huge responsibility, but it is the expectation in, in so today's huge. world. It's so, so huge. <laughs> and I'm hoping that as we continue to think about student outcomes first, and as we see this shift in thinking in the, the field of education and 
inside of individual states, districts, and classrooms, that, that transition is just so important that we will start to see that there's a better understanding that people are seeking more professional development and they're finding services that are provided and folks like you who've been doing this for a long time and help guide not only professional development, but parent advocacy. So I, I can't overstate how important all those things are. So as we get ready to wrap up, I'm gonna ask you one of our listener questions. I picked a good one for you. So um, this uh, person said, I just watched your video talking about focusing on student outcomes and I get working with families, but how do I write a solid transition plan for students when the outcomes the family wants are completely unreasonable? <laughs> how can I get my IEP paperwork and case manager responsibilities done right when I don't have time to counsel the family through realistic, realistic student outcomes? I feel like we kind of talked about this a little bit, but what, what guidance can you give to a teacher who is sitting here being asked to write a goal for transition or an outcome for transition that's just not realistic? Well, the foundation to answer that question is one that um, I know we're all going to continue to struggle with, and that is we're told as public educators, we're told as teachers that we that a student will never learn from us if we have not built relationship, if there's not positive regard and rapport. And uh, from being a trained counselor and a licensed professional counselor, um, I went through all the coursework, I, I went through all of the, the internship and practicum to know that those things are not just you make a 10 minute phone call and you have a good relationship with a student or their parent. But the good relationship is the foundation. It's the grease on the squeaky wheel <laughs> that will make everything else come along easier, will we'll make it smoother. So what I tried to impress on educators early in the school year um, was that if the first phone call, if the first contact and I don't suggest it be email unless that's the only way that a parent will communicate with you because emails can be misinterpreted. The tone is not, it's just not possible to imply your tone um, yes, correctly. One, one misplaced exclamation point can change the context of an email. A, a capitalized letter can just, <laughs> you know, throw that one out in the trash. But reaching out early on with some sort of positive statement, and I learned this as an adaptive behavior teacher years ago, is that sometimes you have to call the student and their parent before school ever starts, because by the first day of school, that child's already been to the office, they've already gotten detention, they've already gotten <laughs> in trouble, and if your first phone call is a negative phone call, you've missed your opportunity. Oh, so contacting families or students early um, even if that means spending four or five hours that first week of professional development when you're exhausted, when you'd rather catch up with friends or colleagues, spending those hours reaching out to families, building relationships, telling them, you know, being honest with them. I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't have control over your child's schedule or in the counselor's office. I don't know if the class they applied for made or you know, I had Absolutely. enough students in it to be scheduled, um, and those decisions were not made this summer, so they're, they're happening now. But what I can tell you is that the things that we've talked, if, if you know the 
prepared, if you've been in, in contentious uh, IEP meetings with them previously, and they have said, um, I don't care uh, if you don't have enough people to go to pottery class with my child, I want a paraprofessional with them. Then that's information that you know about that parent's expectation of support that you can use, not use against them, but use to facilitate the conversation of, okay, if you want them to be a CPA so that they can work in your accounting office and have a good income and have their own home, then we need to start looking at how many tasks they can do without support because CPAs don't usually have and there's no system in the government or within any private opportunity for them to have a one-on-one -on -one assistant who would guide them through uh, CPA work or taking the three-day grueling CPA exam that's required to be licensed. So could we talk about what it is about your child's skills or dreams that you thought was the best match for CPA and reach out to an advocate, a counselor, a career counseling uh, group that might be able to talk or show you videos or show plans to your child about what they would have to accomplish, what training they would have to complete to be in several different careers. And then let them, either as a student who's going to learn to advocate for themselves or as a family, as a student with a support system, determine what is reasonable, what's, what's a, a best choice and a second choice, plan B, um, for, for our family, for this student, and use that data. Um, educators will know data-driven decisions are the way that we're supposed to make IEP decisions. Um, it's the things that are, uh, it's what makes it fair to a student uh, to make those decisions. And so if we use those data-driven decisions and then access resources like uh, here in Texas, the Texas Workforce Commission has a wonderful pre-employment transition program um, that they have moved on, again, on a dime, moved it to virtual submission so that students that needed to be working on pre-employment skills still have that opportunity, even if it's not a best choice for them to be in person right now doing those things. Well, and I, I want to reframe what you're saying a little bit too, just to kind of give this, this uh, maybe context as well. When a, a parent is asking for things for their child, they're not doing it maliciously to make you have a bad day. <laughs> they, they are coming from the perspective of trying to support their child with a disability and get them the outcome that they see with love and purpose. It's never, it's never out of spite or just to be difficult. I mean, we've all worked with tough parents, but they're not doing it to be a tough parent. They're doing it because they love their kid. And when we have parents who are making requests that sometimes seem unreasonable, they're not doing it to be challenging. They're doing it because they see that that outcome is desirable for some reason. 
And like you said, if you don't build a relationship so that you can ask questions about the reasoning, you won't ever get to a, a, a good transition plan. If a parent is saying that they want their child, like you said, to work as a CPA, and maybe they have a significant cognitive disability or a learning disability, or they're terrible with numbers, and the parent says, no, but I want them to be an accountant. We have to find out why. Is it because their sibling is an accountant and they can stay and work with their sibling as the, they age as a parent? Is it because they themselves are an accountant and they want them in the office building with them? Is it because the uh, office building that they are envisioning is going to be secure and they're worried about the wandering of their child? There's so many thought processes that could go into that. And without having a relationship to find out the why, you won't be able to get to the reasoning behind these requests and then craft a transition or outcome plan that makes sense for what the desired outcome is, not just the, oh, I want my, my child to be an accountant or a veterinarian or an OBGYN, but they can't pass biology or math class. That reminds me of the very first lawsuit that I uh, was involved in early, early in my teaching career. And I believe that um, over the 30 years, I uh, gained the reputation of being someone that was not really uh, afraid of being sued because it, it was going to, to be inevitable because it's one of the only um, outcomes or actions that is guaranteed to a family that um, doesn't believe their child's best interest or interest were taken into consideration. But uh, we'd worked, I'd been deposed by one of the largest law firms in Houston uh, over two weeks uh, and trained to go into um, the, the lawsuit or the, uh, the proceedings um, and was just exhausted by just that whole process of, I didn't work, go to night school, uh, take on student loans to become an educator, to spend a month in court away from my students, away from class. But a mom was suing the school district because she wanted her child, who uh, spent much of his day in a hospital bed, in my resource math class. Well, now I was an English major, uh, not really a math and science expert, uh, always felt a little uh, sad for my students if we were, if they were in resource Eng uh, of science or math with me because we were going to be learning things along the way together if it was in the upper grades. Um, but this parent was adamant that her child uh, was going to attend math class in my resource room, even if we had to move some desks over and put this gurney um, over at the side of the classroom. And in one of the breaks, we ended up on a bench outside of the, the litigation room. Um, near, We'd both been to the restroom, kind of looked at each other and had been advised by attorneys not to speak or talk about the case, you know, outside of the room. It was very uncomfortable. And I finally looked over at mom and said, you know, I've wanted to be a teacher since I was a little girl. Um, I'm, I'm over 30 uh, before I ever, you know, have, have gotten my own classroom. So it is a huge compliment to me that you're willing to go to lawsuit and fight to get your child into my class, but I just don't understand. 
And she said very uh, apologetically, um, well, I, I hate to tell you it's not you or your teaching skill that I'm fighting for. It's that four of the students in your math class uh, were in his scout troop when he was little, and I want him to be around people that he knows and people that know him. <laughs> and so when I shared that with the attorney, we were able to settle. We were able to come up with a compromise. We were able to address what her real issue was, um, but how heartbreaking that we spent all that time and effort and money on something we thought was part of the situation when clearly a relationship, some honest conversation that can still occur virtually. Uh, it's harder, it's different, but it can still happen um, to get to the heart of what we're supposed to be doing and what we're all about. Absolutely. I mean, that, that story demonstrates that this whole big idea of having good relationships and knowing the purpose so, so well. So I hope that question helps. That question was from Taisha. I hope that helps Taisha try to navigate coming up with good transition when it seems unrealistic by starting with the relationship first and then really targeting the outcome. The desired outcome is so much more important than the goals that we're trying to shove in and the measurements and all these other things. You have to know that outcome to drive a good transition plan. So build that relationship, Taisha. Find out what those outcomes really are and the real rationale behind it. And I think you'll be able to more effectively spend time drafting transition plans for your students. So I hope that was helpful. While there is a plethora of transition uh, books, manuals, websites, um, webinars, uh, that you could be totally overwhelmed in time by learning more about transition, that there is no magic book, there's no Bible that's going to do transition for you. But I believe that as I have just left the public education sector, that I understand what um, good, solid, quick transition plan, uh, planning that's thorough, and individual uh, requires. And so in ACE Resources, we are um, publishing on September 1st, not only um, a glossary about terminology uh, that parents and educators should, should start focusing on to uh, share their ideas and have a common foundation to, to discuss transition, but also we are putting out a product that I hope will aid those folks that have 10 or 20 transition plans they have to do and have to do virtually. Um, it's, it's a different skill set than what they're used to doing, you know, sending a parent down the hall to pull a student in and ask them a couple of questions and write that out and get that ready for that IEP tomorrow. Yes, I know you, I was there. Um, but, 
and <laughs> not you personally, I hope, but yes, we've all, we've all been there. Hey, I've okay. done, I've, I'm guilty of having done that in the past. We all learn. And, and so, so was I, you know, that what I used to do uh, when I was in the classroom for ITPs, individual transition plans, which was a separate document um, that's been replaced by a transition supplement now in most places, um, it just feels almost criminal of, of yeah. how I approached it in the past. And there but, too, yes. Yeah, but, but what we'll be publishing is hopefully a, a guide that will take a, a case manager or a transition specialist or special educator through um, down and dirty, if you will, but uh, an appropriate, uh, realistic transition planning process that can be done virtually and as quickly as possible still getting to the heart of what transition means for that child. I love that. That is a resource that so many people can benefit from, especially right now when we're seeing that transition is so important and we've always kind of known that, but so much right now has changed. And to take a second to reevaluate the needs of your child, the needs of your students and your realistic outcomes that you're trying to target, so important. So those resources are amazing. Um, and how? they'll be scripted, so you oh. know you can you can literally have a script in front of you. Now it's going to look very stilted if you haven't practiced the questions before you get on Zoom with the parent or the student. But it'll be scripted, so those that are afraid of having that conversation or afraid of asking the questions will have a little support. I love that so much. So many people can benefit from that. That's amazing. Well, so if anybody from here on forward wants to reach out or keep in touch or um, get some extra supports or resources, can you share how they would get in touch with you? Absolutely. My daughter's company, ACE Resources, and again, that's advocacy, uh, consulting or counseling and empowerment, um, is in Cypress, Texas. Our phone number is 346-280-9329. And the email address is ACE Resources with ACE and the R in resources capitalized at mail.com. And there's also a website where my daughter posts um, articles and information, updates, news uh, regularly. And that's at www.ieephtx for Houston, Texas.com. Perfect. I'm going to put all of those, um, the phone number, email, and web address. <clears throat> Excuse me. <laughs> I'm going to put all of that information, the phone number, email, and website address into show notes. So anybody who's trying to get that information, if you weren't able to write that down right now, don't worry. Just check out the show notes and you'll be able to get those resources. And Debbie, do, does the person have to be in Texas or in Houston in order to access the resources or your services? They don't. Uh, understanding that my uh, most of my education or most of my experience as an educator uh, was in uh, Texas, in the Houston area, but I have consulted and worked in smaller school districts. Um, spent a couple of years in California, but have been away from there for um, almost 30 years. So um, things that I would offer or share uh, would be less specific uh, to, to others, but um, e even uh, transition counseling or career counseling, um, the 
first 30 minute consultation or conversation that we have um, is free. Oh. And after that, if counseling for the student, uh, for a family member, um, my, my counseling practice is a little bit broader than just special education support. Um, but after that, um, there's a, a, a way to access those services uh, for a fee. Uh, I don't take insurance right now, but I do uh, provide billing that you can submit to your insurance company for reimbursement if that's something you're interested in doing. So we're just here to help. That's fabulous. And knowing that you can have a conversation with someone to figure out if this is a service that you need, want, can use, is going to work for you is amazing. I, again, the work that you do, you are one of the most epic educators that I've ever known. <laughs> and I can only imagine that the, this project that you're doing going forward is not only gonna be successful, but is really going to have a profound impact on students and adults with disabilities, their parents, their families, and their lives. So I, I appreciate you taking your retirement and making it a, <laughs> a positive thing for those of us still working with students with disabilities and adults with disabilities. So I appreciate that. And I really appreciate you coming in and having this conversation with us today. I'm hoping that we have helped others out there who've been thinking about transition planning for their students with disabilities. It's been my pleasure, Io. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Oh, it was literally my pleasure. So that was Debbie McCart's ACE. Um, I'm going to put all of the information for ACE down in the show notes. So make sure that you reach out if this is something that will support you or someone that you know. And y'all, thank you for coming in and joining me today. Remember that teaching special ed is so hard, but you've got this. Just remember, one day at a time. We'll see you in the next video.